but as it turned out, it was classified as, you know, afterwards as a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury with uh, permanent brain damage, uh, biofrontal uh, lobe damage. What was started happening then was I started getting put on a, on a lot of medications. At one point, I was on eight different psychiatric meds. With each med that got added in, I got deeper and deeper into the depression. It wasn't helping. It was making me more sick. You know, I became suicidal. Hello. This is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. I wanted to share with you a new way to support the show. Let's just say it's as easy as buying a cup of coffee. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please consider buying me a cup of coffee. Check out the site buymeacoffee.com slash Levin. There, you'll have the option of buying me a one-time cup or cups of coffee, or to become a member in order to purchase me some coffee monthly. Your support will help me to not only get caffeinated up, but also to offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. Again, you can find the site at buymeacupofcoffee.com slash Levin. A-L-L-E-V-I-N. It's easy to do and would really help me out greatly. Finally, another way to help me out would be to take just a minute to rate and review the show. This really helps others to be able to discover the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. Really excited tonight we have on the line Hal Hughes. Hal is a former police officer, a former MMA fighter, and a current psychotherapist. Hal, welcome to the show. So much, Al. Looking forward to speaking to you tonight. Hey, yeah, thank you for being here. You've got like a really is- interesting path uh, to eventually becoming a psychotherapist. Uh, and I'm, yeah, you know, you have your own mental health challenges that you've dealt with. I know uh, it sounds like you, you've dealt with some PTSD, some dealt with bipolar disorder, as well as a severe TBI, a traumatic brain injury, some addiction. And again, it, it's all led you on this incredible path to a psychotherapist, and, and I believe also doing some public speaking and so forth. So I would love to to just start. You know, did did you have any kind of mouth challenges growing up in your childhood, or is all of this kind of late onset stuff? Yeah, good question. Late onset, and um, up until two thousand and eight. Um, even spending time as a federal correctional officer and uh, many years as a cop, um, I had zero issues. Uh, I don't recall at any point in my teen years or adult years having anxiety, low mood, depression, anything. It, it all kind of hit me all of a sudden uh, in 2008. 
And was this while you were still working as a police officer? <clears throat> yeah. So, so to sort of paint a paint a picture, January first, um, two thousand eight, uh, I was working as a police officer uh, in a small town, Perth, Ontario, and uh, was in my cruiser. And I stopped, waiting to turn left, uh, and a vehicle struck me from behind, about fifty miles an hour. Um, now, before that moment, um, I was a, a mixed martial artist. Uh, a police officer took great pride in his work. I'm a father of four. Um, I was in great shape physically and otherwise kind of, uh, you know, what you would picture sort of the bulletproof kind of guy, at least I thought I was. Uh, and then, then in that moment, uh, when that car hit me from behind, the head went off the steering wheel. And, uh, that was the first injury, um, one off duty, uh, for 18 months. That was considered a mild traumatic brain injury. And I was diagnosed, okay, I was diagnosed okay. with PTSD and depression. And that was, uh, you were probably your mid-30s, was it? Early Yeah, 30s? so 15 years ago. So do the math on that. I guess I was 35 when that, when that okay. first injury happened. And it took me about 18 months um, to get back to full duties again. Okay, but you did. I did. And um, uh, I, I kind of, you know, everything had sort of resolved. I, I had no symptoms at that point in 2009 when I returned to duty. I kind of thought that uh, the concussion, you know, it had resolved uh, the depression, the the, the trauma um, that I was having, the response to it, uh, it had all resolved. Um, and then, can you know the? I don't. I'm sorry to interrupt, no. but you mentioned depression and stuff. Was that just because? Well, I, I I mean, it makes sense, right? You had this traumatic head injury. I know you said it was, it was not your your severe brain injury, but. Was it just going through all of this, being off of work, that that sunk you into a depression? And what did that depression look like? Yeah, good question. So, you know, de depression is complex. It's multifaceted, as you know. And so I think it was a combination of not being able to do the job that I found tremendous purpose and meaning in, um, the isolation that comes from not working, um, and then the, add in the brain injury, which uh, caused focus and attention issues, as well as chronic migraines. So I was in a lot of pain four or five days a week. I was kind of uh, in my bed, sleeping 18, 20 hours a day. Um, you know, so in terms of the depressive aspects of that injury, you know, depression literally means lack of expression. And I right. wasn't expressing myself physically. I, I gained 50 pounds. I wasn't expressing myself socially, wasn't interacting with people, and I wasn't able to express myself in terms of my vocation. Um, so all of those things really contributed to, you know, and then you add in, I, I started drinking then too. My diet went to hell. I couldn't work out because of the migraines. So it was kind of a perfect storm yeah. for depression, really. And do you think you were, was the being in bed, I mean, that sounds horrendous for so many hours at a time. Was that primarily like you physically couldn't get up because of the migraines or was it partly the depression keep you in, keeping you in bed or completely the, the depression? How would you kind of describe that? Well, I, I think certainly the, the chronic pain was a main contributor to me sort of hiding under the covers. Uh, I, I think also that PTSD played a, played a role in that. You know, it's sort of a, a very common response that humans have to trauma. Um, when we have too much uncertainty, too much uncontrollability in the form of, you know, as a police officer, and then you get injured, it's a very natural tendency to want to sort of put the walls up, hide in the cave or under the covers and sort of hide away from life and sort of embrace certainty, embrace safety, embrace comfort, embrace short-term pleasure uh, as much as you can, whether it's through alcohol, drugs or anything else. So 
I think it was kind of a mixture of PTSD and that response to trauma where I was kind of hiding and avoiding sort of some of my responsibilities in life, plus the chronic pain. Yeah. 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 Well, and like you said, it's a typical response, right? And it is unfortunately incredibly damaging for the mental health, right? Like the isolation, the staying in the bed, the staying away from people. Um, In hindsight, I mean, I'm I'm sure uh, it wasn't a healthy response. And I'm curious too, I understand that you were stuck there though. I mean, that's what depression does. That's what your PTSD was doing. Were, did, were you getting any kind of mental health support at that point or was it just physical support around the migraines and, and the head injury? Well, I, yeah, you're, I had both. I, you know, I was seeing a neurologist, a physiatrist. Uh, I was you know, at, at the Brain Injury Rehab Center in Ottawa quite a bit. Uh, and I also had a psychologist who I saw you know, once a week, once every couple of weeks as well. Um, to, to be honest, a lot of that stuff um, really didn't end up being helpful. Um, you know, the, the meds, the okay. meds, as you're, you're probably aware, most meds have a lot of side effects. Um, and the psychologist I saw, we didn't really um, sort of dovetail, which is, which is, you know, my fault in the sense that in the policing world, it's it's kind of a us and them mentality. And so to trust a clinician and sort of open up and be vulnerable and, and really share what you're struggling with is, is a challenge for a lot of first responders. And I, so I think he probably could have helped me, but I think uh, th- it was this us and them mentality. I didn't, wasn't really able to open him open up. So he wasn't able to help me as much as he probably could have. Yeah, that's interesting. And I really appreciate, well, I mean, you're, you're a therapist, so you bring that, that understanding now, but you know, even as an advocate, I always tell people like, you really have to click with the person, the therapist. And if you don't, I always say, give it a shot for two or three times because you're dealing with depression and some of the uncomfortableness could be yourself. But if you don't click after a few times, don't give up on therapy, but reach out for another therapist. But um, but I completely understand that the us versus them, the police force, the you know, um, kind of being the the tough guy and not opening up. It sounds pretty kind of classic or stereotypical, maybe, of what you would think of of police officers and, like you said, first responders. Oh, abs- absolutely. And and so my recovery from that first injury was really um, as my migraines uh, sort of improved. I started to basically re-engage with the tasks of life that uh, invariably lift depression. Started socializing, exercising again, getting outside in nature, connecting with peers, um, eating better, losing weight, exercising. And so the depression lifted, the symptoms from the uh, PTSD lifted, and I eventually, you know, 18 months later, got back to full duties again. Did you, uh, were you able to join the MMA ring again? I, I never went back to MMA. It was kind of a situation okay. where um, I couldn't take another hit to the head, essentially, is what the doctors sort of told me. So I got into doing some other sports and activities, running and things like that. Uh, but I never did return to MMA. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You hear that often about severe concussions, like, you know, don't don't risk getting hit again. Yeah. Um, hey, just out of curiosity, what was your background that got you into MMA? Were you a particular from a particular martial arts background, or um, so? Initially, I I uh, joined an MMA club, and before I get into policing, and, and at the time, the sole purpose of doing that was I just wanted to have it on my resume as I was trying to get on a police force. I thought I thought oh, it would cool. look good, you know, martial arts. Yeah, and so I went into this club. And um, it was kind of had a really good reputation in the area, as, actually has a world-class reputation now. 
And um, first first uh, martial arts uh, match I ever had, first time I ever rolled with somebody, uh, was with this this guy. He was kind of a scrawny, kind of weak-looking guy. And I walked in there. You know, I was 180 pounds, benching three plates, running sub-four-hour marathons. I thought... I- a little bit of oh, arrogance, boy. I bet. Yeah, I thought I, thought I was... <laughs> and I can remember the first time we bowed, touched hands, and started rolling. I remember thinking, well, I, I won't hurt him. I'll, I'll go easy on him. And right, you know where this right. story's going? Story's- oh, I have a yeah, guess. So, so he tapped me like five times in about a minute. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, that first session was like that. And I left there and I thought, wow, there, there's something to this. And that that started kind of a love affair with, with martial arts and training. And I basically started training full time and I uh, fell in love. And I, I didn't realize I thought it was I thought it was for me to heads. I'll be honest. I thought it wasn't uh, I didn't know it was a cerebral sport. I didn't know what it was all about. And. Um, yeah, I had the really good fortune of training with a guy named Peter Tremblay, my coach, who's, uh, uh, who's one of these mar- true martial art senseis who you go there thinking he's going to teach you how to be a fighter. And he can do that at a world-class level. But what he really has a club there for is to teach people about life. So I was very wow, cool. blessed to have him as a mentor in my life. That's awesome. And I can only imagine that made it so much more difficult when you dealt with a head injury and were told... Like, hey, no, you're not going to be fighting anymore. Yeah, it was, it was particularly um, devastating for me at the time. In, in December of 2007, um, my coach, uh, we were at a, sort of a leadership meeting for the club one night, and uh, he turned to me and, and he said, this is the year you're going to turn pro. Are you ready? I was like, wow. Uh, you know, it was quite an honor that he thought I was, I was ready for that level of competition. Oh, yeah. And uh, then it was probably a week later where I got uh, rear-ended in my cruiser. Oh my God. And do you, uh, I'm guessing, I mean, I guess I will ask because you said the psychotherapy was not that great. Did you have anything, any particular specific therapy around the PTSD in particular, not just getting through your, your depression and so forth, but I know there are certain, um, psychotherapy, uh, models and so forth that work specifically for PTSD. I'm wondering how you addressed and how you were able to get back into a cruiser? Yeah, I, you know, my the psychologist I was seeing specialized in CBT. So, you know, a lot of like challenging of thoughts and beliefs. And it was actually one of the things that kind of shut me down with that particular psychologist was I was explaining an incident um, that I had gone through at work. And it was one of those incidents where nothing actually happened, but something really bad could have happened. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, after I got the guy arrested, he told me that he was going to slit my throat and I found a knife later on in the back of the cruiser. Um, and so he didn't end up attacking me, but, uh, it was just sort of sheer luck and timing that it didn't happen. And I remember, Oh yeah, certainly had the, yeah. Means. So I was telling the psychologist this. And so he basically was trying to challenge this thought that I could have died. And he kept telling me, well, no, that's a irrational belief because you were always a few feet away from him and all this stuff. And, and you know, he doesn't have the experience with a police officer. He doesn't understand time and distance when you're dealing with a with a, a suspect and all this stuff. So he was telling me that I was thinking something that wasn't true based on his inexperience. And, I, you know, I don't hold a fault with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that, that shut me down because right away it was like he doesn't understand me, the career, the job I did. And so from then on, I you know definitely shut the door on really being vulnerable with him, which is, you know, my fault, not his. No, but uh, but I get it. And uh, for any listener who doesn't know, you pr- they probably do know CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And like Hal said, it's around your thoughts and stopping the negative thoughts and stuff. But 
Man, as a cop, I think that is the frame of reference you have to have, right? Like, you are always at risk, and a dude threatens to, to cut your throat, and he has a blade. Who knows, you know? He throws a punch at you and knocks you down, not, you know, hits you in your throat, I don't know, whatever, and then grabs that knife. Like, that doesn't sound to me like a typical, hey, that's a thought you have to stop. It's irrational. That seems... Like, it perfectly makes sense for a police officer's thought process and what it needs to be to always be on the defensive. Oh, you're, you're bang on, Al. And, and the thing with policing is that, um, you know, I, I believe that as humans, we're, we're kind of evolutionarily wired to look for what's wrong, to worry about what could happen wrong tomorrow even. I mean, that's we're wired for survival in that way. The, the only ancestors of ours that passed down DNA were the ones that were kind of worrisome, scared creatures anticipating the worst. So, so you take that DNA and then you put it in uh, somebody present day on the job as a cop and um, every situation they go into, if they overestimate the potential threat, they, they, over, they catastrophize what could happen, what happens is every time they do that, they survive and get to go home. So, so it right. eventually sort of rewires your brain or, or adds on another layer of worrisome mammal that we've already got from evolution. And now you start seeing the whole world as potential threat. You start seeing danger around every corner. You start assuming, you know, all people are shitty. You start assuming the worst of everything because on the job, yeah. it keeps you safe. But the problem is when you have that mentality in your everyday life, things start to suffer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's just really not a – I mean, that that sounds almost like the, the description of PTSD, right? Like your brain is always on high alert. You're always wondering who's behind me, who's going to come out of that door, and you can't shut that down. Absolutely. And what happens is, is it's essentially when you, you know, you've been on the job for 5, 10, 15, whatever years, you've had this constant state of amygdala activation, which is just the fight or flight part of your brain pumping chemicals up to the front of it, noradrenaline, adrenaline, cortisol through your body. And so eventually it's almost like a, you know, the RPMs on a car. So, you know, it, it revs up to 3,000 when you get a call and you have to go do something, and then it goes back, you know, to 600, whatever normal is. But after it's been revving up and down for years, eventually it never goes back to a normal resting rate. So, yeah, so eventually, yeah. just in your everyday life, you're revving at 2,000, and the bandwidth between that and red line is so small that you start getting symptoms like irritability and hypervigilance and things like this. Oh, yeah. That's a great analogy. I love that RPM thing. And in my mind, it, yeah, it's like it goes up to 3,000 when that uh, when you're, you get a tough call. And then maybe it used to go down to 60, but now all of a sudden it goes down, but only to 80 or 90. And then you get that call and you're always in that high range, which eventually you're, you're stuck in that high range, always on high alert, on and off duty, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, like the average person in a, you know, sort of a regular career, regular civilian type position in a lifetime, you might face, you know, five or six, maybe eight situations, which are truly like life or death situations or truly tragic. Let's say, you know, you you witness a you're part of a car accident. Uh, you witness someone you love die, say, like, you know, something like that. You know, m most people right. go through, you know, a certain number, five, six, eight with something like that. Um, but on the job as a police officer, men and women, you know, in a shift, in one shift, they might have six or seven of those type situations, you know, where they're giving CPR to somebody, they're at a, a bad yeah. motor, motor crash, they're at a domestic disturbance. So you start doing the math on that, you know, three, four days a week, 
you know, 12 months of the year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, the average cop, if you put 15, 20, 30 years in, we're not talking like dozens or hundreds. We're talking thousands of incidents where, where yeah. your amygdala is just supercharged. And that causes uh, dysfunction in your brain. That, that much chemical dumped to the front of your brain causes dysfunction in the front parts of your brain for attention, memory, emotional regulation, these kinds of things. Absolutely. It's interesting, though. So help me understand the, the connection here, because in my mind, all of a sudden, like I completely understand that and it makes a ton of sense to me. On the other hand, I remember having a fireman on the show who said, I knew that I was in trouble when I was in the middle of a fire and felt like pulling out a card table and playing cards with the guys. And when I went home and I never told my family, like, wow, I had a, a huge fire to deal with today. Like, he became super desensitized. So what about the desensitization that some go through and how can you relate that to kind of the high alert state that you talk about? And I'm wondering, I mean, maybe they're completely unrelated. Maybe some go through one and not the other, but just curious of your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple of things that could be going on there. One is, uh, you know, the, our brains are major, uh, amazingly adaptive. And one of the responses to too much trauma can be sort of this emotional numbing. Almost, almost like a dissociation with a sort of lack of caring, and it, and it's a way that our mind can sort of protect itself from too much emotion, too much adrenaline, too much trauma. So, so right. you see some men and women officers who get in this kind of sort of an indifferent state. The problem is, is that when we protect ourselves in that way, unconsciously, when we protect ourselves from the bad, we also protect ourselves from the good. So, so, yeah. so when this emotional numbing occurs. Sure, at work, it's a little bit adaptive in the sense that, you know, they're not getting overly uh, emotionally invested in everything that's going on. But at home, um, that doesn't usually fly so well with, you know, with our partners, with our kids, with our loved ones. So um, right. the other thing that sometimes is going on, and this sort of connects back to depression, and uh, I don't know if this will resonate with you or not in your experiences, but, and, you know, there's, there's generally, you know, response to trauma is generally uh, fight or flight. And the, the third thing isn't talked about as much, and it's fight, flight, or freeze. And you'll see this in all, in all sorts of mammals where they either you know, stick it in and fight it out or they'll, they'll run. But then some animals will freeze. You'll see that where like a baby deer will just kind of low down in the grass and not move. Um, yeah. And so one possible framework where we can look at depression um, is it's essentially kind of a long freeze response to too much stress in life. If you, if you look at what someone who's depressed, what they look like, what they're doing, it, it kind of looks like a free state. You know, there's not a lot of movement, not a lot of activity, not a lot of socialization, a lot of sitting still on the couch with Netflix kind of thing, kind of activity. Yeah. It, it's like, it's almost in some cases like a prolonged freeze response to too much stress and too much trauma. Yeah, man, that that's, I really like that. I've never really heard of it described in the fight or flight and freeze. I mean, I've heard that phrase. I've never thought of depression as being in kind of elongated phase of freeze, but that makes so much sense to me. And it describes for, for sure part of my depression where I was on the couch, I couldn't move um, or I didn't know where to move to and what to do. And part of the time I would like was connected to my wife at her hip because I was just following her around because I didn't know what I was supposed to be yeah. doing. So Take us back now. So you get back after 18 months of recovery and you finally get back to going to work. 
What was that like for you, just feeling-wise? Were you just super excited? And were you hopping right into a cruiser? And what was that like for you as well? Yeah, so it was kind of a graduate return, as they often do when you're off work that long. Um, but I fairly quickly got back, you know, got my firearm back, uh, got back in the cruiser. The only limitation that the doctors put on me was they didn't let me work past 11 at night. And uh, the thinking behind that was just with PTSD and a brain injury, sleep, well, sleep's important for everybody, but particularly yeah. important for people that have uh, struggled with those kinds of injuries. So um, other than that, I was working full duty, same as everyone else, taking the same calls. And I was just excited to be back. Um, was it weird or scary when you hopped in a cruiser again for the first time? I mean, did you have flashbacks of, oh, crap, I, I certainly hope nobody rams me? Um, I don't remember having too much of that. Uh, I, I think I'm sure, uh, this is a long time ago now, 14 years ago, I, I'm sure there was a, a bit of hesitation, but in my work leading up to returning, um, you know, I'd sort of done my share of the sort of exposure therapy. You know, I went to the station, you know, went near the cruisers and different things like that. But I, okay. I think whatever fear or anxiety I had, um, like most good things in life, it was outweighed by the excitement and the pride uh, of getting back to work. So uh, as much as there was probably fear and anxiety there, it, it was sort of shadowed, uh, by my excitement. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And so from there, uh, tell us about the next stage related to your mental health. Yeah. So, uh, so 2009, I'm back to work, everything's going well. And then in 2013, uh, we had a suspect, um, detained. Actually, ironically, we had him detained in the emergency room of the hospital. And uh, he had been in some fights. Uh, one of them was with me and another officer. Uh, he was out of control, I, I believe, high on drugs. but uh, Like a different night? Uh, so we responded to this call. He was fighting with his roommate. He was out of control, uh, you know, very, very intoxicated. We fought with him there, finally got him cuffed, got him in the cruiser, got him, and we had to take him to the hospital because his head was cut open. Um, so we took him to the hospital, he was sitting on the bed, uh, we had him cuffed, um, and I was just sort of holding his cuffs from behind while the doctor was tending to him because they'd been so violent. We were just keeping hands on him and make sure he didn't hurt the staff at the hospital. And, uh, he was, he sort of calmed down and relaxed. And then my bad, I let go. And as soon as he felt me take pressure off, um, you know, having hands on him, uh, he kind of stood up and then did essentially like a reverse headbutt on me, uh, oh. hit me in the, by my eye. Um, and I went, I hit the deck, I hit the deck, was sort of a flash knockout. Um, and you know, no better place to, than the hospital to have a brain injury though. Right. I was <laughs> literally, uh, right, right onto a stretcher and, uh, was treated there. Um, it was, but holy crap, like this is how long after your return did this happen? Four years. And you had already been how four. many yeah. years, four years. And it must have been on your mind too. Like you weren't doing MMA because you knew you couldn't take another head hit. Yeah. I, I can sort of uh, vaguely remember saying something to one of the nurses um, when I was on the stretcher and was sort of fully, uh, well, somewhat lucid. I can remember telling them something like, you know, don't make any notes on any of this. I don't want this recorded that there's that I could potentially have another injury. What I was thinking was I don't want to be put off work again. So I just right. want to fly under the radar. I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. Um, but as it turned out, it was classified as, you know, afterwards as a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury with uh, permanent brain damage, uh, bifrontal uh, lobe damage. Oh my God. Holy crap. Um, 
And so what does that equate to in, uh, in English? This, uh, how did it impact you permanently? So what happened is, um, you know, well, right back to, I was, you know, sleeping 18, 20 hours a day. The migraines were back really severe. Um, I was, um, you know, had a, a stutter. My speech, uh, would fall over all the time. Just, I had no balance, uh, cause of where the injury was, uh, had a real hard time thinking, expressing myself. Um, and the, the one thing that started becoming apparent was the severe mood, um, severe depression. Um, but then what sort of sort of cascaded down in terms of symptomology, like in the coming months after that injury was every once in a while, I would get this day or two of extremely high energy. You know, I'd be up till three or four in the morning, starting all kinds of projects around the house, writing, doing artwork, um, really strange sort of stuff, uh, engaging in sort of riskier sort of out there behaviors. Um, and so I was, you know, I had a, I had a team of doctors, I had a neurologist, a physiatrist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a neurosurgeon who were sort of managing my care. And so what was started happening then was I started getting put on a, on a lot of medications. At one point I was on eight different psychiatric meds, you know, two different antidepressants, oh, wow. two different antidepressants, a, a mood stabilizer, an anxiety med, a uh, painkiller. Um, and then I was put through a course of a type of shock therapy for, for 30 days straight uh, as well to sort of try to alleviate the depressive symptoms of the bipolar. Um, and then, so you, I don't think you had mentioned that you were diagnosed with bipolar and that's why they put you on all these meds. Yeah, that's right. And, and is that, is it because of the traumatic incident? Uh, or because of the brain injury, like what it, do you know how bipolar disorder suddenly manifested? So their best guess was that because of the area of the injury was in the frontal lobes and the area in particular that's responsible for emotional regulation, um, that's essentially what caused the dysfunction and caused the bipolar. And it sounds like probably bipolar two. That's right. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. so I, yeah, wow. so I was put on all these meds and, um, you know, it, it essentially, uh, despite the psychiatrist's best intentions, um, it, it was killing me. I was, uh, you know, I, I was with each med that got added in, I got deeper and deeper into the depression. It wasn't helping. It was making me more sick. Um, you know, I became suicidal and the only thing that helped was I was given a small prescription for codeine. Uh, to, to deal with the pain, the, the migraines. And within a few months of being given that small prescription, I was using large amounts of Oxycontin, Percocet, anything to get my hands on daily. Um, I wasn't prescribed it. Um, but uh, yeah, so that... How, so how were you going about getting that? Well, I'll leave that to your imagination. You know, it, it was a okay. very, <laughs> it was a very dark time, obviously. I'm a police officer, off work injured. Uh, yeah. you know, it started out as, as a prescription from a doctor and then just quickly devolved into something very ugly and it sort of culminated yeah. in two different overdoses. Um, wow. and so I kind of survived all that. Despite two different ODs that overdoses that brought you to the hospital for getting your stomach pumped. Like, is that what you mean when you say OD? No, no pumps like that? There was, there was, um, the last time was essentially my wife, staying up all night with 911 ready to dial in case I stopped breathing, but I didn't. Uh, oh my yeah. God. So, so it, it was, it was pretty bad and it was, it was sort of trending in an even worse direction. Uh, did your wife know at that time that you were really deep into the opioids? She did. Yeah. She was aware. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I'm sure probably not okay. to the extent, um, but she was definitely yeah. aware there was an addiction there. There was a bit of an intervention at our friend's house where, you know, okay. they told me that, that I had to go to treatment and things like that. I sort of, um, that was probably one of the two things that started me uh, on making the decision to recover from this. How did how did you handle an intervention from the friends and family? Like, were you angry at them, or were you understanding? I, I wasn't angry at all. They they approached they okay. approached it with love, um, and basically, awesome. yeah, I basically said I, I'm not going to an inpatient treatment, but today's the day I'm going to get clean. Um, and then it was a short time after that that was really the sort of the pivotal. Uh, there was there's two things. The first thing that I came to realize was that nobody's coming to save me. The, the psychiatrist isn't going to save me. Actually, they're killing me with these meds. The psychologist isn't going to save me. My wife's not going to save me. My family and friends aren't going to save me. The neurologist is not going to save me. Um, I got to save myself. And so I came to that realization. And then probably the really the hinge point of my recovery happened when my wife was trying to explain um, to my young son uh, what was wrong with his daddy. He was sort of she was sort of saying to him, you know, daddy's not the same daddy. You know, he, you know, this is why he doesn't read you books at night. This is why he doesn't play with you. This is why sort of he isn't being his, the usual daddy that you're used to. And my little boy, he, he was sort of trying to digest what my wife was saying as a young lad. And in the middle of it, he just kind of stopped and turned and looked at me and he said, well, I want my real daddy to come home. Wow. Whew. How old was your kid at the time? He was quite young, single digits, and not really yeah, of an age wow. where I thought he could really understand what my wife was saying. But as soon yeah. as, as soon as I heard that, uh, and I knew nobody was coming to save me, um, it started as sort of a journey for me of of me finding a non medical prescription for my mental health. Uh, what about uh, did that impact? all of the prescription meds you were on, the antipsychotics and so forth for the bipolar, um, were you still on all of those? And were you trying to get off of those at the same time as stopping your opiate addiction? Yeah, I kind of did it all at once. Uh, I I, I basically, um, I came to the conclusion that what was, what they were doing or what I was doing in terms of the medical intervention wasn't working. So at the same time as I got clean, uh, I titrated off all the meds and essentially replaced um, the medical intervention with interventions of my own, and uh, okay. healthy, healthy interventions. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. one of the one of the strangest things, and um, you know, salvation recovery um, is found in the strangest spot. Um, I always thought that part of my issues were just too much stress, and it turns out my salvation, my recovery, was found in more stress, but just the right kinds of right, right kinds of stress. Okay. Say more about that. Well, you've, I'm sure you've heard the saying, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Yep, for sure. So, so it turns out that most of the pathways to resiliency, whether it's physical or emotional or psychological, um, are found on the other side of some type of short-term stressor or suffering. You know, the the four big ones that are part of my everyday life are intermittent fasting, sauna, ice baths, and intense exercise. And and so I started down that path of intentionally putting myself in really uncomfortable environments, whether it's, you know, a five-degree ice bath or an 80-degree Celsius sauna 
extreme running, extreme exercise and eating in a four hour window a day. I fast 20 hours a day. And what I found was, is that when I started doing all those things across time is my physiology, my, my well-being, my biology all came back in line. My hormones came back in line. My blood sugar came back in line. My energy came back in line. And what that provided was clarity of mind. And when you have clarity of mind, you can then solve problems in your life like PTSD, depression, or anything in your life. But, with, but right. without clarity of mind, to problem solve something where the problem is actually in your own mind is near impossible, which is why a lot of these medications aren't that great for a lot of people. It's because, yeah. because they take down your faculties and reducing your faculties or clarity of mind is almost never a good thing. Right, right. You know, a couple of things I want to mention or ask you about. One is you mentioned that you titrated down off your antipsychotics and your, your meds for the, the bipolar disorder and depression. So I'm guessing it sounds like you probably did that like with your psycho psychiatrist's um, awareness. Or did you just do that on your own and you just knew how to titrate down cautiously? Yeah, I did it on my own. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have got the green light from any of my doctors to do that, given okay. the severity of the injury and the severity of the bipolar. But, you know, somebody wise once once asked me a question one time and they said, uh, you know, what meds are you on? And I told them and uh, they said, OK, well, what medical condition do you have? And I said, well, bipolar. And they said, that's not a medical condition. That's a psychological condition. How are you going to solve a psychological condition with a medicine? And I said, well, no, it's, it's biological. I got this injury. I got these things are all a little whack. And, he, and then he said it again. He said, well, there's better solutions for biological problems than medicine. And so that 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 kind of started me down this road of trying to heal myself and not relying on exogenous chemicals to do so. And, and you know, I, I'm not right. bashing medicine completely. There's there's a time and place for antidepressants and everything else. But, but yeah. generally speaking, most people that have, let's say, some sort of a chemical imbalance in their brain, it's not necessarily because they ran into depression or had bad genes. It's a lot of times because they're simply not engaged in the proper processes of diet, exercise, socialization, sunlight, sleep, et cetera. And so when you get those processes back in place, most of the time, that's enough to fix whatever was going on in your brain. Not always, obviously, but, but most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I would say just uh, if you're going to wean off of meds, make sure you're doing it slowly and make sure if at all possible you do it with um, a psychiatrist or therapist. But I also understand where you're coming from, where you were like, there's no way they would have given me the green light and this is what I had to do. And I did it carefully and cautiously. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that totally. Anything anything that I may say tonight, uh, it's not a prescription for others' behavior. It's just an explanation of my own. And you know, some of these meds coming them off them is going to cause quite a chemical imbalance and to be monitored by a professional to, to know how to do it is absolutely the, what people want to do. And, and that was going to lead me to the next one. I, I, man, you did. So I've read and done so, you know, a bit of, uh, research around cryotherapy essentially is what you're talking about with the ice baths, shocking your body, right. With this super cold, um, and doing the sauna, the hot, 
the, that can be some awesome stuff. And I, again, I would just caution people to possibly, you know, run that by your family doctor, especially if you have any kind of heart issues or something, you know, before you start jumping into some of those extremes and also making sure that you do it in a healthy way, right? Because I definitely know of some people that um, had some behaviors that became almost uh, a little bit like OCD, obsessive compulsive, you know, with two, like working out in the gym eight hours a day. And um, so, I mean, some of those uh, extremes can, can be risky as well in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. And some of those things are obviously, you know, if there's underlying conditions, you know, it's right. not something you're you're going to want to shock yourself with with any extremes until you make sure, you know, you got a healthy heart and everything's good to go. For yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, tell me more. I'm really curious about the so you decided to to get off of the meds altogether, yet you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So do you think your bipolar disorder you now just manage without medicines at all? Do you believe you still have bipolar disorder or you never had it? Tell me what your take is on that whole piece. Oh, man, Al, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I think I suspect it's maybe a little bit of what you said. I, I suspect maybe I have a vulnerability to... Um, because of the injuries, maybe have a vulnerability to have some mood dysregulation in the form of low mood or heightened mood. Uh, and then I'm simply, um, I've compensated and replaced the meds with much healthier avenues. So so that could be going on. Um, I, I'm, I, my plan is to never test the theory and stop doing all the healthy things I do every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a very smart yeah, plan. The, the brain is, is very hard to understand. It, it's, a, it's the most complex machine uh that we know of three pounds of gelatinous mass that has created everything that you and i you know our ability to talk tonight was created by a brain right the technology and and i think um you know it's it's one of those things where i think the biggest problem that most people have and that certainly that i have i'll just speak for myself is that it's a very sharp instrument that we have up there in our skull and and most people don't know how to operate it i don't know if you ever heard the story of the the chef with the sharp knife no, I don't think so. Young guy, he uh, and, and by the way, sorry, I should have said this at the beginning, Al. Um, anything I may say tonight, none of it is an original thought on my end. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I, and and I've occasionally <laughs> thought I had an original idea or perspective, and then I Googled it, and some Greek person said it two thousand <laughs> years ago. So that just assume funny. anything I'm saying. I, there and let's face it, anyone who's packaging up new material, self help stuff. It's all old stuff from the Greeks anyways. But anyway, <laughs> right, that aside, right. the story is that, so I say that because this story, I can't remember where I heard it, but I, I'm sure I'm repeating someone else's story. So uh, the stories of the guy, he, he, or guy or gal, they, just, they decide that they want to become a chef. So they, they research, they find out where the kind of the closest master chef person is, kind of a Gordon Ramsay type, let's say, and they go in and they beg for a job. Master chef says, okay, but you know, first six months, all you're going to do is chop vegetables. The guy or gal is like, yep, yeah, great. No problem. So the master chef comes in with this really, really sharp knife, gently hands it to them and says, be really careful. This is a really sharp instrument. Person starts chopping vegetables. Chef pokes his head in 20 minutes later. Remember, really sharp instrument. Be careful. So guess what happens in the first few hours? No idea. They cut their finger. Ah, because in an, in an unsteady hand, a sharp instrument can do a lot of damage. 
Absolutely. And so this is a, a obviously an obvious metaphor for the human mind. It's an incredibly sharp instrument, but when in an unsteady hand or someone who does not understand how to use it properly, it can cause a lot of damage to oneself, anxiety, depression, anger, right, impatience. Right. Uh, and so the problem is in our school system, there, there is no training for how to sort of master this incredible instrument. So we're left to our own devices kind of fiddling and tinkering, trying to find out how to do it. And it's, it's no wonder I'm super busy in my office because, you know, we don't get this handbook handed out to us in high school, do we? How to manage this sharp instrument. Yeah, in fact, we don't do enough to, to get our kids to understand that when we have them in schools no. and we should be doing more. So tell me, you know, I kind of breezed past this. You got yourself off of your antipsychotics by titrating down and so forth. But how about the opioid addiction? How did you deal with that? And, and how did that, how were you able to get through that? Well, I, I think the, you know, it's sort of cliche, but it's one of those things where uh, every addict has to make a, make the decision uh, that they're not going to do it anymore. And so I went to, um, uh, I was clear headed enough in, at the time to know that I needed some sort of support. So the, so the first thing I did was uh, started going to some NA meetings. Um, and the first, I guess this was a kind of an eye opener for me. I was really doing that at first because my friend said inpatient program or, you know, they were uh, during the intervention. So I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll go to NA meetings and I'm going to stay clean. Narcotics Anonymous. Yep. So the first NA meeting I went to, I, c I can remember so clearly sitting there judging everyone around me, you know, oh, I'm a cop. I don't need this. These people are all you know, whatever I was, I'd yeah. be honest, I was judging them, you know? Yeah. And, uh, then I had this, this sudden awareness flooded over me because I was sitting there judging these people and I was high. Wow. And there was a, there, there's, there's a bit of a break. There's a bit of coffee break. And I went and started a little kitchen area and there was a guy in there kind of making the coffee. And I just sort of, sort of started talking to him and turns out he was a physician who had almost lost everything because of his addiction. And it was, it was in that moment that I realized that addiction, you know, it, it crosses all socioeconomic boundaries. It doesn't care who you are, that any of us can be vulnerable to it. And so I was able to drop the judgment, open up at those meetings. And that really was, you know, the start of sort of my, my sobriety, which is uh, coming up on seven years this July. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. So um, just curious just about a little bit more about that. So you did the NA meetings. I mean, do you go cold turkey all of a sudden? Like, okay, I'm flushing these all down the toilet. Or did you kind of like your psychotic meds, uh, antipsychotics? Did you kind of have to wean off the opioids? Or how did you handle all of that? Well, it wasn't pretty. Uh, I, uh, you know, I had young kids at the time. And uh, so I basically went and stayed at our, our friend's house and slept in their basement for four days and got really sick and went through withdrawal. Um, Wow, so cold turkey, four yeah. days in somebody's basement, yeah. withdrawal symptoms of, can you describe those? Um, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had, except it's in every bone and every inch of your body, kind of like that. Wow. Throwing, throwing up, cold sweats, um, your whole body's in pain, essentially. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's, uh, you know, the price I paid for not feeling anything or feeling any pain for many years. And, and was like four days it and then you 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 go through four days of hell and then you're done and never want another opioid 
Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, addiction is one of those things for me, I think for most people is it, it's the second you start telling yourself that you're sort of past it and there's no, there's no issue around is the second you're in trouble. Right. You know, there's, there's still the occasional, you know, thought or feeling that, Hey, that would be, that would feel good or that would be fun. Right. Um, but you know, at this point in my life, obviously, especially what I do for a living, I mean, it would be very short term pleasure, uh, yeah. causing long term pain to, to go back down that road. So I'll never, uh, I'll never use any narcotics ever again. Yeah. And so are you able to kind of put a frame of time on that from the, from those four days of withdrawal, were you still using it a little bit? like now and then for another couple months, uh, another year, or were you completely clean after that? Yeah, I was clean after that. Okay, awesome. And did you did you keep going to NA meetings and and do you still or how's that? So, so I went to me I went to maybe 10 or 12 meetings altogether okay. and then um you know, that along with all these other things I was doing to get a return to health um I didn't go anymore. And now, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that it's, it's obviously a great support for most people. It's really good. Um, for whatever reason, I, f I felt like I didn't need it. I started really going in a great direction. Yeah. My life started, uh, in terms of career, school, family, everything was heading my health, my fitness was going in a really good direction. So for me personally, I felt like I didn't need it. Okay. Um, but I know there's there's lots of uh, people that go to NA for for years and years. They don't just go for themselves too. They go to support others. Right. But for me, it was kind of a, a short yeah uh, a short time. Yeah. Did you? Uh, is it like AA? I'm guessing where you probably were assigned a sponsor. Yeah, it was. I I didn't end up getting a sponsor. I wasn't there long enough, and I kind of okay. scattered myself around different meetings. I didn't sort of pick a home meeting and go there every time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, and so you got through the addiction, you got off of the meds, you started, I hear you, you know, saying you replaced those with healthy habits and, and maintaining your diet and the, the healthy, all these different healthy habits to replace all of those. And, and then now tell us like, now you're a therapist, you're a psychotherapist. How did you get into that field? What brought you there? How did you make that decision? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, twist of the stories. I, I was actually uh, in 20, 2016, 2017, uh, green-lighted to go back to work with the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, but at the time, so I couldn't do frontline again, obviously, for sure this time with the head injury. Um, but at the time, they said they didn't have space in this particular office or a laptop or something. So there was going to be a bit of a wait, which is kind of odd for an organization that big, but whatever was going on there in that unit. And so my WSAB uh, worker who was managing my return to work file, um, just a, a, a real um, lucky thing on my part, turns out she was a PhD. She's a, she's a huge academic. And um, so she said, well, do you, do you even want to go back and work in an office? Would you ever want to go back to school and try something different? And I said, well, I've always wanted to get my master's degree in psychology, but you guys aren't going to support that. And anyway, she kind of uh, worked her magic and WSAB supported that uh, two and a half years of school. And I completed my master's degree and um, started uh, in full practice in uh, 2020. Wow. Congratulations. Um, can you tell us what the acronym WSAB is? Uh, workplace 
safety and insurance board. So it's okay. kind of the safety net here in Ontario. If somebody gets injured on the job, yeah, then they get involved and help support the worker and help them get back to work. Okay. And did that, did they actually pay for you to go back for schooling or that was out of your own pocket? So, so what happens is if, if, if there isn't a position with your employer and you want to get retrained in something else, they'll often support like two years of college or different training, you know? Wow, cool. Um, yeah. And so it was kind of a unique circumstance because I already had an undergrad and I had this great worker with them. She sort of massaged that, that system so that I had an entire master's degree paid for. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah, very, very lucky. And so I, I started in private practice in 2020. And um, now um, the the bulk, the majority, I would say, of my practice is with veterans and first responders who are struggling with workplace injuries. Um, that That's who I help most of the time now in my practice. That is so cool. And uh, I know, like uh, I offered you before the show started, like I do with a lot of guys like yourself who are doing some incredible work, offered to kind of plug the work you're doing. And you were up front and said, you know what, I've actually got a ton of clients, don't have to plug it. But I'd love to sh- to still share, you know, your website and any way people can learn more about you and whether or not it's okay if they reach out to you as well. Yeah, so my website's uh, uh, halhughes.com, um, and uh, yeah, they can they can reach out to me through the contact bar on that if they uh, you know want to reach out at all. Absolutely, they can. Okay, awesome, awesome. And uh, the last thing uh, I want to do is ask you a question that I ask all the guests on the show, and that is if there's a listener out there who's really struggling right now whether it's with depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, um, and maybe they're not sure what to do, what's your uh, biggest piece of advice for them? Wow, that's a that's a put-on-the-spot question, isn't it, Al? It, it really is, and I do it to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one, you don't have to nail it down to one. You can give us a few of your pointers. Well, for depression, I would say um, it's bio, psycho, social. I would, I would say for anyone listening, I would take a piece of paper, write down biology at the top and then the middle put psycho and then the bottom put social. And I would just start to make a little list for yourself. Biologically, in other words, my physical health, what's one little thing I could do that would slowly and incrementally move me in a better direction. And if someone asked themselves legitimately the question, what is in need of repair and what could I do and be humble enough to set the bar low, what's one little thing I could do in the area of my physical health that would improve it? And what's one thing, one bullshit thing that I'm doing that's hurting me in that area if I cut it out? Same with psychological, same with social. And if you just incrementally and slowly start to add in little good things in each of those areas and take away the stuff you know that's hurting you in them, that's what self-improvement is. And self-improvement and growth are the pathways out of depression. Depression is not something, mental illness isn't something you recover from. It's something you have to grow through. Man, I love that. And one thing uh, in particular that I love about that is something that I often say too, is create some small goals uh, and take some baby steps if that's where you're at, right? So if you're stuck on the couch and you can't get your rear end off the couch, Set a goal to, to walk around the block one time. Yep. That'll get fresh air. It's a little bit of exercise. It gets you up and out. 
and then celebrate it. Pat yourself on the back and acknowledge that you're working towards it. Because I also always say, you know, it takes time and effort. You know, you really have to work at it. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, the, I, think, I think the trick is that, you know, we have to be humble enough to set the bar low enough. Yeah. You know, we can't underestimate the impact of a small thing if it's something we do every day. Right, right. Yeah, awesome. Well, Hal, I want to, first of all, thank you for for being willing to share your story. It's an incredible story you have. I really appreciate your time for being on The Depression Files. And even better yet, I, I really appreciate all the incredible work you're doing. And, and I'm so glad you're doing that. Thanks a lot. It's great talking to you. Just before uh, before I go, I just have to mention very quickly, kind of a shout out. Um, you know, I mentioned all those some of those things that helped me recover from from these injuries. But um, there's five main reasons: my four kids, and sorry, chokes me up. <laughs> and the the main uh, reason is my wife Tina. She stuck by me through all of that, and I put her through some pretty awful things as a result of my injuries and my depression and bipolar and addiction. And that woman has stuck beside me. We've been together 30 years and wow. she was, she was my foundation that I was able to build a recovery on top of. That is so cool. So cool. And, uh, you know, just, uh, just a, a little plug for my own work. One of my, I do also have a blog and one of my posts is spouses need support too, right? My wife too stood by me and I'm sure I put her through hell with some of the things I said to her at my deepest moments and uh, stuck by my side and helped me get through it. Um, so that's cool. I'm so excited for you and, uh, and your family too. Thanks, Al. Thanks very much. Well, make sure, uh, thanks again, Hal, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. You too, Al. All the best. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.